So Money Episode 615, a rerun with Dan Ariely, best-selling author and behavioral economist. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. This episode originally aired on August 29th, 2016. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's a good day. It's a very good day. Today's guest is one of my favorite authors on the planet. He has given me so much invaluable insight throughout the years as I've been working in the field of personal finance, trying to untangle the reasons why we do the silly things we do with money. Dan Ariely, he's our special guest today, author of several New York Times bestsellers. You've probably come across them. They still sell them. They, they sell like hotcakes in the, in the airports. And that's the best place to be if you've got a book. His books include Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. I actually tapped Dan for his expertise recently for my Oprah column about how we can combat all the money myths that we have circling in our heads and how we can save better. And Dan and I were two of the keynote speakers recently at the Northern California Financial Planners Association gathering. I missed him there, though. He spoke... Before I did, I arrived later. We missed each other, but it was still an honor selected to speak at the same event that he was at. Felt pretty cool about that. A little more about Dan. He is a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight and a chief behavioral economist with a new savings app called Capital with a Q. He's a multiple TED Time talker. His speeches have been viewed millions of times, and he's also the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics. With Dan, we learn the pros and cons to technology and the digital age we live in when it comes to personal finance, the ways we can change our irrational tendencies when it comes to saving and investing, how to avoid expensive cravings, and how to feel more grateful for what we have. Here we go. Here's Dan Ariely. Enjoy. Dan Ariely, welcome to the show. So great to have you. A pleasure to be here. What I love most about your work, Dan, is not just the research, but the solutions that you give us to try to, in very practical ways, combat our irrationality. But, you know, given the pressures today of income inequality, rising costs, there's a lot of lack of education. How optimistic are you that we can really, really turn things around and become more fiscally responsible as a society. I mean, do you find that there is resistance? Do you find that there are just some circumstances where it makes it really difficult to practice some of your solutions? So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, I think absolutely the answer is yes. So, and, you know, but I, but I don't get depressed by it. So, you know, one of the things we, we've realized in social science over the many, many uh, recent years is that the environment matters. And it matters more than we think. So, you know, we usually think about people as uh, agents of decisions and it's all about us and we decide and we act and we, and so on. Uh, but the reality is that the environment has a lot to do with it. So imagine I came to your office every morning and I layered your desk with donuts. Uh, every morning. Thank fresh, you very much. Wonderful. That would be delicious. Uh, and let's say I do it for the whole year. 
uh, what will you think will be the effect on your waistline <laughs> by, by the end of the year and, and your health in general, right? So, right. <laughs> so look, if, I, if we did this experiment and I um, uh, kind of expose you to a lot of donuts every day, I'm not saying you will be tempted every day to eat a little bit, but uh, there'll be many, many days you'll be tempted. And if the consequence will be short-term pleasure and long-term, uh, you know, perhaps health Depression. Um, so, so the thing is that if I expose you to donuts or whatever it is, you're very likely to fail, but I don't have to expose you to donuts. So, you know, once, once we get people to be exposed to temptation, texting and driving, overeating, under-saving, not exercising, it is, the, the temptation is so strong. And, you know, the companies that produce temptations improve all the time. Uh, again, not to say anything bad about donuts, but you know, Dunkin' Donuts is just getting better and better, <laughs> tempting us. That's that's right. their mission in life. And Facebook is getting better and better in getting us to check Facebook more often. And and life is really about kind of companies around us. Almost all of them want to tempt us. They want to tempt us to use our time, money, attention in a way that works for them right now. So so we fail. We fail often. So that's the depressing side. The good side is that we can create new tools. So, so in the same way that we say we don't have to expose ourselves to donuts, right? We could do other things. Like we can create a phone that would not let us text while driving, right? We haven't done it yet, but it's possible, right? Actually, it's not too complex to figure out that uh, there's algorithms that know that you're driving and disable all kinds of things. Yes, it's less fun, but also less dangerous. So I, I'm a big believer in creating tools that help us overcome some of our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Now, now think about the, the world of money. Uh, in, uh, some time ago, you know, whatever, 100 years ago, uh, 50 years ago, we had cash. And cash is kind of simple. Uh, also, we have a rather simple life. Uh, people have uh, defined benefits plans. We didn't live that long. Uh, donuts were not as good, you know. We didn't have we didn't have uh, all all the variety of all the things that modern life has, which is wonderful, but also tempting. As life progressed, uh, life became more complex. All of a sudden, figuring out the mortgage is difficult. By the way, here's an here's an interesting story. So, as long as mortgages had only one dimension, what's the interest rate? It was very easy to figure out that, you know, 3.75 is a worse interest rate than 3.5. But but then they went ahead and they added points to the mortgage process. So now you can pay an amount of money up front and that reduces your interest rate. And now people get confused because the computation is much more difficult. So So think about what it means that people get confused and choose the wrong mortgages or the one that actually don't pay don't charge them more the moment you move from one dimension to two dimension and think about our economic environment right now. We have of course mortgages and student loans and car payments and credit card payments. We had retirement saving we have emergency saving we need to save for our kids' college. All of this is becoming incredibly difficult. Also, because of the American tax system, we don't really know how much we get paid until April the following year. So, so we have created a system that is very, very complex. 
Now, so, have you noticed you- though? Just to just to ask, I'm curious because you're comparing society today to say society in the 50s. Were we better at making decisions in the 50s because our environment was sim- more simple? That's right. Okay. So it's not that we were better. Just life was kind of pointed out to make a simple decision, hmm. right? Just imagine a, a world in which you only have interest rate and a world in which you have interest at end points. Right. When you just have interest rate, you don't make the same, you can't make the same mistakes. They're not available. I, imagine a world in which you have a, a phone that keeps on beeping all the time while you're driving and you're really curious about what it says versus living in a world in which you don't have a phone. Right. It's not that kind of human being became more stupid. I know that, that <laughs> you know, like as, as I get older, it's kind of a nice. <laughs> it's an easy you know, excuse, right? That's all oh, when I was young. But 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 the reality is that life is becoming more complex. But but here's the good news. When you think about money, money has moved from being physical to digital. And while that is creating some complexities, I also think that's also the opportunity for how to do things. So imagine you and I sat together and we said, look, we understand a lot about the psychology of money. We understand about temptation. We understand about saving. We understand about budgeting. How would we create an electronic wallet that would help people understand the opportunity cost of money? Right? Every time, every time you go into Starbucks and you buy a cup of coffee, you give up something in the process. Right? Something gives. What? Very hard to figure out. Can we create an electronic wallet or electronic tool that would help people understand that? So, yes, electronic money and life complexity has become harder. It's harder to save. Life is more tempting. And uh, uh, people make more mistakes. But yeah, yeah. we can do better. But, Dan, you know, one of the more famous studies around cash, which I've read because I'm a nerd, is that, you know, when you use cash, it's actually better than using a credit card in the sense that, there is a pain associated with giving out your money, your actual exactly. cash. So when in, a, in, a, in the digital era, when everything is now your electronic wallet, is that something that is going to hurt us? Yeah. So, so, so I think this is a, a great point about uh, kind of a great way to think about it. So, you know, this, this notion of pain of paying that you, that you mentioned is the idea that when we, when we go to a, a nice restaurant and we pay with cash at the end, we kind of feel a ting, like there's a little bit of annoyance. Um, but if we pay with, with a credit card, we don't feel the same thing. Actually, debit card is a little less, credit card is a little less. If we do something like Apple Pay, we don't even think about this. Somebody just swipes something next to our phone. And the pain of paying is all about saliency. It's all about thinking about money at the time uh, when we're paying. So, so yes, you're right. That so far, the electronic tools that we've created from cash to credit cards to Apple and Android Pay, those have made the pain of paying lower and our temptation to spend higher. But we don't have to do it this way. And let's just use our creativity for a few minutes. Imagine you and I were designing together an electronic wallet that tries to get you to think about the pain of paying. They try to get you to think about where the money is coming from. Like, how would you design it? So to start with, you would want people to think about money before they order, not after they get the dinner, right? Mm-hmm. So as you enter the restaurant, I would have some geofencing and I will let you know, hey, by the way, here is your budget 
for dining out this month and here is where you are. And, and if you're going to spend more than that, the money has to, go from, to come from somewhere. Where is it coming from? Right? Mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me where it's coming from. And then uh, maybe during the ordering process, I would get you to reconsider the alternatives. <laughs> right? Okay. So uh, here's, here's, by the way, a beautiful experiment that Dilip Soman did in India. And, and then we, it's not digital, but you can think about how it would be digital. So he went to a place in India where migrant workers show up to work. And, you know, these are people who come to work very hard, physical labor, and send money to their families. But everywhere that men gather to work, temptation also appears, right? All kinds of things. So what happens is people on Friday get an envelope with money, and they spend too much of it and send too little money home. So Dilip tried two things. He compared what happens when you give people an envelope to what happens when you give people four separate envelopes, the same amount of money, but you just pack it in four different envelopes and you seal them. What happened? People send more money home. And when do they stop? When they have to open a new envelope. So what happens is the moment you open an envelope, you just use it. Mm -hmm. but, but then you get to what we call the decision point. Like the moment you start an envelope, you just use it. But if you get to the end of the envelope, you stop for a second and you ask yourself, do I really want to open a new envelope? And many times people say no. And then life get, gets better. But, but in another condition, more interesting one, he gave them the same four envelopes, but he wrote the name of their kids on each mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. Now, you can say this is a little cruel, but this is a representation of the opportunity cost. All of a sudden, he said, you know what? I want you to think about where this money is coming from. And by thinking about where this money is coming from, people were spending less money. Now, this is with envelopes. We could do a much better approach with electronic wallets. Right. Right. So, so, so you're right that everywhere that the industry has gone is to make us spend with greater ease, with less pain of paying, and think less about the future and more about the present. But, but I'm still hoping <laughs> that somebody will create a better electronic wallet. So you're working right now with Capital. You're the chief behavioral economist. Is the, it's a fintech app. How is that app maybe offering some of these behavioral solutions? Yeah. So, so Capital actually is a, is a combination of all kinds, all kinds of solutions uh, bundled into one with the idea that some things are difficult and let's, uh, and let's help people with those things. So, for example, one of the things that happened is that people look at their balance, at their checking account balance, and that kind of is used as a guide to how much money we have to, to spend. But the problem is that we have a very uneven flow of income and outcome. So uh, think, for example, about two people, person A and person B. Uh, they both get paid $5,000 as a salary, and they both have a, a rent or, or mortgage, let's say mortgage, of $2,000. Both of them get paid on the last day of the month, but person A gets the mortgage payment on the first of the month, and, mortgage, uh, and person B gets the mortgage deducted on the 20th of the month. What happens? Person A gets the money in, the mortgage comes out, and they see that they have $3,000 in their checking account, right? And that mm -hmm. basically helps them think about how to budget themselves. Person B gets $5,000. Nothing comes out for the first 20 days. They look at their checking balance and they say, oh my goodness, I have lots of money. Right. Now, it's not that these people could not sit with a piece of paper and say, I really don't have that money. 
But when you look at that number, you're not thinking about all of your expenses. But, but that's the easy case, right? Think about what happened with bi-monthly, bi-yearly expenses, like insurance. Right? Some states, people charge, pay insurance twice a year. Every month, m- money goes into your account, and some of it needs to go to pay this bill. Right? You don't want to get mm-hmm. the bill all of a sudden. So, so capital basically tries – the first thing or you know, one of the things they, they're trying to do is to basically say, let's help people automatically take money <laughs> out of your checking account to all of those buckets. So when your salary comes in, uh, you already we, – we virtually take money for all the bills and all the expenses and emergency saving to kind of sort out how – your financial life really looks like. So instead of one number that represents lots of things, we help you by doing separate numbers. On top of that, we said that opportunity cost is very hard, right? So, um, you know, every time you buy something, you're giving up something else. Uh, A few years ago, we went to a Toyota dealership and we asked people, these are people who are about to buy a car and we asked them, look, if you buy this car, what would you not be able to do? And people had no answer. Why? Because they never thought about it. So then we pushed them. We said, look, something has to give. And the most common answer we got was, if I buy a Toyota, I can't buy a Honda. <laughs> so people were substituting in the same time frame in the same category, but they should have said something like, I'm giving three weeks of vacation over the next right. five years and 100 letters and 70 books and whatever it is. So the second thing that capital is trying to do is to help people understand the trade-offs. So there's some things you might say you want. You want a bicycle, you want summer vacation, you want to change your car in five years. And, and money, you see, if money just sits in your checking account, it doesn't have a color, it doesn't have a goal, it's just money. But by putting the money into different buckets for people in terms of what they want to achieve, we help people realize what they want. Now, you know, I have to say, I like computer gadgets. I, I enjoy the process of buying computer gadgets, from time to time, I'm disappointed with what I got, but the excitement of trying something new is still, is still nice, you know, okay. Um, but, but how do I want to indulge in computer gadgets? Do I want to just look at it and every time say, oh, that's great, let me try it? Or do I want to basically say, I got this, let me get it in three months? Or I, I want this, but do I want it more than something else? Mm-hmm. So, so capital is trying to get all of those activities for people to basically add some a pause, a thinking, to think about the trade-offs that we're actually making, uh, but, but doing them. And how's it working? Have you been measuring the results? Yes, we've been. Uh, so capital has been going on uh, f- for a while. Uh, started very small with just a few a few people that were were invited. Now it's uh, becoming bigger, and people love the automation of the process because look, uh, dealing with money and thinking about money is just mostly unpleasant, right? We want some help. If we enjoyed it, we would start every morning with an Excel spreadsheet of how much money we have and what we want to do and how to allocate the money. So. So the automation is helping people a lot. Um, And then basically thinking about money as, we're not using this term in capital, but I like the term as color, as having a color. It has a a goal. It has a a category. It helps people align spending to how they want to spend. You know, I'm very happy if, if, if you and I, let's say you and I talked about your financial spending. It could be at the end of the day, I would say, you know what? I don't think you're spending enough on coffee. Or I don't think you're spending enough on vacation, right? Uh, uh, helping people make decisions about money 
is not always about spending less. It's about spending better, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have decisions between now and later, and we have decisions between now and one, now and now. You can say, let me go once a week to an expensive restaurant or twice a week to a cheaper restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me uh, bring a bottle of uh, wine from home. Let me, whatever it is, the goal is to help people do things better, but, but we really have to help people. Because we have to give people this sense of where is this money coming from? What would you not be able to do? The, the trade-offs that are hidden, how do we make them slightly more visible and thoughtful? I like that. Don't spend less necessarily. It's about spending better. With regards to automation, Dan, what's the downside to that? My feeling is that, and I think you've written about this, is that while on the one hand, automation is a fabulous solution, take the 401k, for example, if that didn't exist, so many of us would have $0 in retirement. But ideally, you still want to have some relationship with that money because what happens is when we automate, we just set it and forget it. That's right. And so how do we reconcile automation with still having a connection to our money so that we still have that important sort of emotional feeling towards it that, you know, we actually end up caring instead of forgetting about it? Yeah. So, so, so I think it's kind of an interesting balance between doing something that is so like counting calories, right? Counting mm-hmm. calories of how much you eat is so annoying and mm-hmm. so time consuming that the vast, vast majority of people just give up, right? And when they give up, it's not as if they start eating well. When we give up, we we eat badly. And I think the same thing applies to money. Thinking about money and accounting and how much money we have and what's the trade-offs and so on is just a little bit too much for the joy of life, right? If every time you thought about a cup of coffee, you would say, okay, what am I giving up in the future? Let me uh, make a list of that. Life would be very annoying. So, so the goal is to make some decisions that help us down the line. And we come maybe once a year and revise those big decisions. So, so, so it's not that we're completely out of control, but we kind of set up a plan for ourselves, right? So if you go to a gym, it's a really good thing to kind of uh, make 10 appointments with a trainer and say, okay, I've, I've figured out what to do in the next uh, five weeks, and then I'll figure out the next step. Um, with money, think about something like budget for restaurants. Mm-hmm. You pick a budget for a restaurant, you figure what it is, and you just use it for a while, maybe six months, maybe a year. At the end of the year, you say, okay, was this too much? Was this too little? I don't want people to sit every day and figure out what the restaurant budget should be like. I want you to do it once in a while, and then I want you to enjoy restaurants rather than suffer every time you go to eat. So, so, so think about this balance between, yes, we want control. Yes, we want to be involved. But maybe it's more like an oil change for a car, where once every 3,000 miles, you stop, you fix things, you reconsider, you reevaluate, and then you continue without thinking about, about the engine for a while. So in, to recap, change your environment, understand your trade-offs, automate when you can, think about saving as spending better, not less. What for you has been the biggest shift when you've applied some of your research into your own personal life? What do you think has been the most impactful? So so for me, I'll tell you the trick that I have used for, for myself is I created another account. I took a prepaid debit card 
and I basically said to myself, I want that this card is all my fun discretionary spending. Right? So, so it, in, in, it includes coffee, it includes restaurants, it includes uh, gifts if I want to buy. Um, and, and I basically, you know, thought about it once, like, how much do I want to be in this, in this category? I kind of made a guess of uh, what seems to be a good amount that is not too high um, and, and reasonable. And then I, I have an automatic transfer every month to this account. But I kind of created this mental account of fund spending. I can see where I am. I can see how I'm tracking compared to what I want to, I want to do. It's a very high order accounting because I don't break it by, you know, restaurants and gadgets and uh, coffee, but it gives me a sense of where I am now compared to what I want to spend. And, and I find that if I'm behind, I sometimes say, okay, that's great. If I see something next that I really want, uh, go for it. If I'm uh, spending a bit too, too much, it helps me modulate this. But as long as the money was there in my checking account, it was very hard to figure out where I am on my discretionary spending, which is the only thing that I have uh, real control over. So create almost a silo for that money that is it's very clear what your boundaries are. Yeah. You know, another thing that that I I think is interesting to do is to figure out a bit more what makes us happy. Mm. You know, if you think about kind of money as a mechanism to derive happiness, which it is, right? It's not that you can buy everything with money, but uh, you have an amount of money and you have to decide how you want to use it to get happiness in the form of, you know, coffee and breakfast and uh, vacation and cars and, and so on. And I think it's interesting to, to ask ourselves to, or to doubt ourselves whether we are really good at it. And say, do I really understand how to use money to become to become happier? And and if we don't, then try some very different things. Uh, so, for example, it's very easy to imagine on vacations. We say, well, you know, we have a family vacation. We go to Florida every year. We're perfectly happy with this. Life is good. The kids enjoy it. Everybody is very happy. Um, but but is this the right approach? There's these other things that we've never done before. We haven't tried it. Uh, not sure. Not sure if it would be great or not. But I'm willing to admit that I'm not. I can't predict very well. So for us, for example, uh, five years ago we decided to try going to something called the Chitakwa Institute in New York. It's it's a summer camp for kids. You know, the kids do sailing and you know play and so on. But it's also a summer camp for adults, and the adults go for lectures. <laughs> So, you know, there's discussions on philosophy and religion and politics and science and so on. Um, is this a great way to spend a vacation? Was completely unclear, uh, but the, at, we tried it out. And by the end of the, of the first uh, year, we realized it is a great way uh, to spend a vacation. So, so I think also kind of going from time to time out of our comfort zone mm -hmm. and trying different things is incredibly important. One last question, and this is a little bit of a selfish question because I'm working on some some uh, articles right now around this this correlation, and I would love to get your take on it. So I think you might have some thoughts. The correlation between being grateful and financial prosperity. In other words, when you wake up in the morning and you walk through life feeling grateful for what you have, even though you may not be the wealthiest person, you may not have all the all the top resources at your disposal, but 
you appreciate the fact that you have your health and, you know, that you have a roof over your head, the simple things that uh, there have actually been some studies on that. Let's see that people who think like that tend to have a, not only a better outlook on life, but a better outlook on their finances. And they are, they're more likely to go down a path of financial well-being versus somebody who is always comparing themselves to others. Oh, I don't have enough, et cetera. Um, is that just karma or is that, is there, is there something very scientific about that? So, so a big part of it has to do with the key of comparing yourself, right? So for example, we know that people who are religious uh, in the U S don't feel they need brand names to the same degree that people who are not religious. And we don't know exactly the, the mechanism, but one possibility is that they have an identity that is around religion and, and modesty, and they're not looking for an identity around a brand of a car, for example. Uh, so, so they're much more likely to buy generic than, than branded um, uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing we know is there was a paper that came out recently that showed that when people win the lottery, their neighbors start spending more money. <laughs> right? wow. and, 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 you know, you can see how it happens, right? Imagine your neighbor uh, just won the lottery. The Keeping next up day with they, the Joneses, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, they were just like us all the time. And now, you know, our kids play together. You know, they lived in the same neighborhood. I mean, it's one thing if somebody is very rich living in a very far away neighborhood and they get richer, you don't even know about it. But if somebody in your neighborhood all of a sudden has a remodeled kitchen and a new car, um, you, you have the urge to get that as well. So, so keeping up with the Joneses is a very, a very important thing. And, and I think it is about this, you know, of course, the expression, the hedonic treadmill. One of the things that, that we find about spending is that people say to themselves, oh, you know, if I get this new car, I'll be really happy. And you get a new car and you're really happy, but for a short time. And after a while, the car is just not that new anymore and you're just back to your old level of happiness. And you say to yourself, oh, I'm not that happy. What did I did last time that made me happy? Oh, I bought a new car. Well, that made me happy. Let me buy a new boat. And you mm-hmm. buy a new boat and you're really happy for a short time and then it goes down and the hedonic treadmill is this idea that we chase things, they make us short-term happy, but then we're no better uh, later on, and then we need another boost of happiness, and we keep on spending and spending and spending while running in place. You could, you could see how if somebody doesn't need that, if you're basically happy with what you have, and you're not searching for this happiness, uh, li- life is actually... Uh, much simpler. And, you know, there's lots of things in life that uh, cost a lot. New car, you know, we see the price of the car, but when you think about buying a new car, replacing your car, you see the cost, the upfront cost of the car. Let's say you have your car now cost is worth $10,000 and there's a new car that costs $30,000. But what is very clear is that you'll pay $20,000 $20,000 to, you know, sell your car and buy a new one. But what people don't think about upfront is that lots of other things will become more expensive. Uh, there's taxes on the car that they will become more expensive. There's insurance, of course, that will become more expensive. Uh, repair 
you'll probably have uh, maybe maybe that the engine will not will not uh, get defected but every time you'll have a scratch you'll feel like uh, fixing it you wouldn't it would be like scratch number 17 that you don't care about it'll be scratch number one that you want to want to repair so if if we have this craving mindset of looking at our neighbors looking at other things and so on it's very hard to very hard to stop spending any sense on how we can feel more grateful do we just join a religion <laughs> do we join so, a cause so you know uh, religions have their own blessings and their own costs uh, so the, the area of, of uh, mindfulness uh, is is not my area of research but every time i read something about it i i'm deeply impressed with how simple uh, mindfulness and being grateful how how simple and and non time consuming some of those interventions are you know so meditating for a few minutes a day uh, ends up making a big a big difference mm-hmm. saying a couple of things to yourself about kind of reassuring and thinking about what you're grateful for uh, makes a difference now i have to admit like with meditation i try from time to time i close my eyes and you know in 20 seconds my to-do list pops up and i know it's good and i know it's important but um i i fail on this but me but too I, me too don't worry <laughs> you're not the only one well, you know, I, I still want to worry about it because I, I want to get to it at some point. But <laughs> we all want uh, to reach Nirvana, okay? Yeah, I, yeah, just a bit more calm. But <laughs> so I think I think there are some there are some ways to to feel more grateful to look at the full full half, you know, full seven eighth part of the of the cup and not at the other one. Uh, you know, personally, I think that for me and the people working with me at, at Duke. Um, you know, we have some projects in Africa on financial savings and, and health and so on. And and wherever you come back from, from Africa, it's very hard uh, not to feel grateful at anything. You know, I, I talked yesterday with some people over dinner about, I said, what do you think is the, is the most amazing product in the U.S.? And, you know, people have their own thing. And I said, you know, I think it's water. Wow. It's just unbelievable because it's It's safe. Mm. It cleans, it has health supplements, and it's there so like all the time that we don't even think about it. And it's really amazing. But, but you know, that's the part of being grateful is that you go to a place where you realize people have to walk for an hour to get uh, an hour there, an hour back to get some water. All of a sudden, you see how amazing things are. So, you know, hopefully, we don't need to expose ourselves to too much misery to be uh, more grateful. We can do it without it. I love that. That's great advice. Yeah, just, you know, start pitching out in your community. There's tons of ways you can, you know, experience other people's adversity and put things in perspective for yourself. Dan Ariely, thank you so much. This was very enlightening and we really appreciate your time. We know you're super busy. So thanks for joining. My pleasure. Take care. If you'd like to learn more about Dan, his website is danarielli.com. Capital is QA. P-I-T-A-L dot com. And Dan is on Twitter at Dan Ariely. All this information is back at SoMoneyPodcast.com where you can click on the podcast to download it. You can grab the transcript. You can leave a comment. Let us know what you thought about this episode. I'd love to hear from you. 
And if you have a question for me for the Friday episodes of So Money, head over to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. And that way we will connect. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Hope to see you right back here on Wednesday. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. So money.